Hello and welcome to Gamification Unlocked, a show about real games and how we can use their techniques for learning and change. I'm Brandon Carper, an instructional designer. And I'm Chad Hayfley. I work in user experience in academic libraries. And this brings us to our second part of our series on discovery learning. Welcome back. Welcome back. So, Chad, can you refresh our memories on what we learned in the light side of discovery learning? We learned don't get run over by a train. <laughs> yes, that is a discovery you will not have a chance to so, make use of later in life. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully not. But no, we talked about, um, I'm going to forget his name now, the guy from the 1960s. He had initials and then a last name, J.S. Bruner. I made it. Uh, and he talked about the benefits of discovery learning, increasing intellectual potency, uh, generally letting people do things themselves rather than prescribing it for them. Yes, and all of that sounds very good. And in fact, discovery learning is very popular today, I think, based on my anecdotal evidence I've heard. I'll accept it. You'll accept it. <laughs> Judges say, okay. Uh, but now we're going to present some contradictory opinions on discovery learning. In the, in the form of a 2006 article from the Educational Psychologist Journal titled, Why Minimal Guidance During Instruction Does Not Work. <gasps> Gasp. And I quote, <clears throat> The past half century of empirical research on this issue has provided overwhelming and unambiguous evidence that minimal guidance during instruction is significantly less effective and efficient than guidance specifically designed to support the cognitive processing necessary for learning. Boom. And in the highly emotive world of academic articles, <laughs> that that's, is, that's a barn burner right there. That, that's the equivalent of uh, saying, come at me, bro, and taking <laughs> off your jacket. <laughs> <laughs> to somebody from 50 years ago. <laughs> yes. Well, all of his disciples that uh, he has uh, created. So uh, the article... <laughs> says that people have changed the name of discovery learning to something else every time the research catches up with it. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Like it's, you know, skipping from town to town, one step ahead of the law. Uh, it has since been called, uh, well, originally discovery learning, also problem-based learning, also inquiry learning, experiential learning, constructivist learning. I'm pretty sure I've heard all of these come up at some point. Yes, and little did you know they were all aliases for the same alleged criminal. That's sneaky. Sneaky. So, Bruner, one of his ideas was that it was easier to remember something if you discover it for yourself. You remember that from his uh, four advantages we talked about last Dude, week. Yes. Yeah. But these authors say that, you know, when you encode something in your long-term memory, you're going to have to construct your own mental schema whether you have complete information or incomplete information. So you might as well <laughs> just start with the complete information and load that into your brain from there. So is the argument you're going to get there eventually anyway? Well, the, the argument is that, you know, if, if you need to, you know, organize things in a certain way to get them into your brain anyway... You know, why don't you save yourself the trouble and just start with a complete set of information instead of going on an Easter egg hunt to mm -hmm. figure out what the information is. So it's a more efficient path. Right. And 
they say that learners can sometimes end up devoting so much of their working memory to trying to figure out the, the patterns and the concepts they're looking at that they don't have enough left to encode the knowledge into their, their long-term memory. Especially if you're a novice and you don't have much in your brain at the moment to you know, connect that new knowledge with. So, you know, your, your working memory is kind of like the, the RAM in your head and you only have so much. It's the, the, the size of your desktop. And if, you know, 90% of the desktop in your head is devoted to, you know, like I said before, an Easter egg hunt, you only have 10% of that left to, you know, open up the Easter eggs, sort the candy and put them into nice bags. Next thing you know, you're grinding to a halt. Yes, exactly. Uh, what do you think about that, Chad? Does that does that sound right to you? I think so. I, I, but you know, I would have said the stuff we discussed in the previous episode also sounded right to me. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I think they they both sound on the surface to be kind of equally plausible. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, they go on and say that the the process for solving a problem is not the same as the process for encoding problem-solving skills into long-term memory. So is that the uh, provide-a-fish versus teach-to-fish? Well, the, the idea there is just because you solved a particular problem doesn't necessarily mean that you gained any problem-solving skills out of the experience. Okay, so ends versus means. Yeah, so... When I read this, I thought about to teaching myself programming. Mm-hmm, <laughs> Again, mm-hmm. we, we talked about this last week. Um, so when I taught myself programming, I was kind of in a stage of my life where I was just tired of school and formal instruction and sitting through class and reading textbooks. And I had the Internet and I was just going to Google some stuff and figure out how to do it. You were going to discovery learn the heck out of that programming language. <laughs> yes, sir. And, uh, you know, so I would spend, you know, hours Googling a particular, just picking an error. And at the end of the day, I would solve that very particular specific error, but I wouldn't really know why it was occurring or how to fix similar ones. So you'd find someone who said, hey, paste these three lines of code here and your problem will be solved. Yeah. And I I would read the code enough to make sure I wasn't, you know, installing spyware on my computer or something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, beyond that, it solved my problem and I I would move on, which, you know, maybe if I'd put in some upfront effort to understanding the structures and the conventions of the language that I was trying to program in, it would have solved me a lot of trouble and enabled me to just solve problems instead of finding the answer to that particular problem. And it's also very possible that even if you understood how that fix worked, it may still not be the most optimal or efficient way. To have done things, you know, routing around problems versus solving problems and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I would just go through stackoverflow.com until Mm -hmm. I found something that happened to work and then then continue. Yeah, I've spent significant time there. (laughs) So uh, their basic idea is that, you know, going through the same motions as an expert doesn't necessarily give you the, the, the mental models that an expert has in the long run. Um, and the, I experienced this, this also very literally, um, when I was in Japan trying to learn Aikido, which is a a martial art. And I thought I was going to be a real big shot and go, I was living in Tokyo at the time. So I thought I would go to the Aikido headquarters where the head instructor was the grandson of the founder of Aikido. Is it actually called Aikido headquarters? 
yeah, it translates to uh, yeah, Aikido headquarters. That's amazing. Dojo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's kind of a smallish building with I think three or four floors. So I can picture it much grander in my mind. Yeah, maybe not the the grand you know samurai <laughs> structure you might have in mind. I'm no longer interested. <laughs> Uh, so uh, the, the, the flaw in my plan was that all of the classes there are taught in Japanese, which as we talked about last episode, I never really learned to speak very well or understand, but people told me, you know, it's fine. It's a physical art. You'll go through the motions and you'll, you'll learn just by doing it. That's the nice thing about it being a physical martial art. And, you know, when the founder of Aikido taught it to his disciples, he didn't say anything to them. He just practiced <laughs> with them and they figured it out. So you'll be getting a very authentic Aikido experience. And you'll do it uphill both ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I did ride the subway back and forth an hour each way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure parts of it were uphill. Um, But, you know, after going through, I think, three or four months of that, I give that approach to learning Aikido a solid F minus. F minus. Oh, (laughs) ouch. That's harsh. F minus. I mean, I I distinctly remember the day where where there there was so one of the teachers there. He he was a nice guy. He smiled and laughed a lot. He was an an old an older guy with kind of a a beard, which was, you know, kind of it's not common in Japan. And he had Mm -hmm. a buzz cut. So Uh, nice, interesting guy. And. He, I was doing something wrong, and he was trying to explain it to me, and my foot was in the wrong place, and he fixed it to point the other direction, and he looked at me and said, basic, <laughs> and he walked away. <laughs> oh, so much contained in one word. <laughs> and I thought, well, how was I supposed to know that this was basic? Well, I guess I guess I was supposed to have been able to speak Japanese. You know? uh, perhaps. So, that was so assumed. That, that, was, yeah. that was my own fault. So... I think that was the last day I went there and I found it. (laughs) (laughs) But man, you got that foot position down. Yeah. But but I didn't understand, like, is this the foot position for this particular move? Is Mm -hmm. this for, for all moves? Is this for this move in some situations? Like I, I didn't know, you know? And so I just went to a different uh, dojo where they spoke English (laughs) and they could tell me, yeah, you're supposed your your feet are supposed to be like that just all the time, pretty much. Oh, <laughs> I was okay, like, okay, Easy and like I can move on with my life now. I don't have yep. to conduct a series of scientific experiments <laughs> just to figure out what you know angle my foot's supposed to be at. So to connect that back to what we talked about last week with uh, the vanishing of Ethan Carter, you would spend like hours trying to blindly find your way through a puzzle and figure out what the mechanics of it were. Does that feel like a similar situation? Yeah, it, it's. It's very, yeah, it, it is similar, but the nice thing about a video game is that you can constrain the amounts of things that you can do. Mm, okay, yes. So much more vastly than, um, than say, when you're learning a martial art, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially in, in Aikido, where there's no competitive Aikido, and 90% of, you know, Aikido schools uh, for boring reasons we won't get into here but so especially there where there's no competition you really need to understand why you're doing something because you don't have a chance to you know really practice it in a in a hundred percent you know competitive environment Mm -hmm. so but with you know with ethan carter you can only 
click on so many things. You can only hover over so many things to get a pop-up, right? And eventually through trial and error, you're going to find the right answer, mm-hmm. um, hopefully. But, you know, with, with Aikido, you know, okay, there's 360 degrees in a, a circle. Well, my foot's not that flexible, but you get, <laughs> you get the idea. <laughs> but maybe it's supposed to be. Right. And, you know, there's so many you know different permutations and combinations of what could have been, you know, happening in that particular setup that you were practicing. So, so, so you're... Your theoretical menu of things you can do is is much larger in real life than it is in in any game. Oh yes, yes, in- infinitely so. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, so so getting back to the the article that we were talking about, so the authors you know say that pure discovery learning often leads to frustration mm-hmm. <laughs> and and misconceptions. So they they cited one study where students. Well, the, the students taking discovery learning lessons, I think, scored higher in terms of how much they preferred that type of learning than students who went through more traditional lessons. But the students who went through the, the discovery learning lessons actually scored more poorly on a post-test compared to the pre-test. Oops. <laughs> in some cases. Ouch. So, and this this just flies in the face of a mantra that I heard from from a lot of people in my secondary education uh, studies, which is make it fun and that'll mm-hmm. make it better, right? Just give them the joy of discovery and everything will, will sort itself out. Well, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes someone looks at you and just says basic and you feel stupid. <laughs> That's not what they make the feel good movie of the week out of. <laughs> um, no. And uh, they spend a lot of time in that article examining studies of medical students using problem-based learning. Uh, I guess that might be an area where problem-based learning and discovery learning is is more prevalent. But so their version of problem-based learning is more the, the scientific area where they'll come up with a hypothesis about a situation and test it out and see if the results uh, equal their, their prediction. So they said that the people who went through the problem-based learning experiences had, quote, lower basic science exam scores, no differences in residency selections, and more study hours each day. Yeah. And uh, they reported that although PBL studies receive better scores for their clinical performance, they also order significantly more unnecessary tests at a much higher patient cost with less benefit. Oh, that's fascinating. I I, mm-hmm. I like that because it doesn't just follow them through like a pretest post test, but actually out into broader possible implications of of what it means. Right. So you can see there that you know I guess the habits they developed and that the, the problem based learning was you know to experiment a lot, right, mm-hmm. and and see what stuck, and that seemed to have carried over a bit, which might not have been the most optimal thing in that context. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did say that the higher clinical scores might just be a natural byproduct of having to spend more time in clinical settings rather than the problem-based learning being the, the active ingredient. And they said in general that students had trouble extrapolating general principles from specific examples, and that led to, quote, less coherent explanations and more errors. So basically, an expert, in their opinion, looks at a problem and starts by thinking about general principles, while novices look at a problem and try to think of like specific situations that that problem is similar to. And they said the problem-based learning students were stuck in that novice mindset where they just compared 
a problem to a bunch of different individual situations instead of looking at it from a, a more organized schema. So if they've learned how to handle a situation where the input is X, when the input is X plus one, they don't necessarily know what to do with it. Right. They, instead of looking at their understanding of X, they would probably look through their minds to see if they've had any anything else resembling X plus one. Mm-hmm. Right. More and more, this is tying back into my past experiences trying to learn programming languages. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the antidote that they propose to this type of uh, discovery, problem-based inquiry learning, is what is called worked examples, which you'll find in other instructional design textbooks, which basically you look at examples of a problem being solved by an expert with an explanation of why that solution is working. And that does just as much, if not more good than working it through yourself. So it's getting into their thought process and how they tackle the situation. Right. You're, you're looking yeah, you're looking at an illustrative example and you're seeing an expert walk through the process and yeah, so you can kind of live vicariously through them and start to absorb their, their mental models by Mm -hmm. looking at it that way. So in case you were wondering, well, which one is right? The, the, the one that we heard last week, which sounded really good, or the one we heard this week, which sounds slightly more cranky, but also <laughs> very insightful. <laughs> when in doubt, I go with the cranky option. <laughs> there was a 2011 meta-study. So a meta-study is a study that looks at a bunch of other studies, so you don't have to read every single thing that's published in a... <laughs> Well, that was like five years ago. Trial. We're probably ready for a meta meta study or meta study meta. <laughs> meta. I can't even know. I'm sorry. Uh, so it was called Does Discovery Based Instruction Enhance Learning, uh, published in the Journal of Educational Psychology. The authors here reviewed 580 comparisons between discovery learning and expository teaching across the learning domains of math, computer skills, science, problem solving psychomotor skills, and social skills, and they found a significant difference in favor of... Drum roll. What? 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 Sorry, I ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say drum roll, please. (laughs) In favor of expository teaching, which is the, the more traditional approach of giving students concepts, telling them what the concepts have in common, and then... Uh, going from there instead of forcing them to figure out what the concepts had in common. And that was the same across all of those disciplines you listed? Uh, yeah, that was... I don't know if they looked at each discipline individually. Oh, it was um, one kind of grand, yeah, grand they, analysis. They, okay. they called out a few that the benefit for expository teaching was especially pronounced. But... Yeah, on whole, there was a a small, I think, but significant difference in favor of expository teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so since we're talking about the the dark side of discovery learning, and this is a gamification podcast, here come I, the games. Yeah, here come the games where I did not have a great time engaging in discovery learning. So there was a, a critical darling a couple years ago called Brothers: A Tale of Two Sons. In uh, 2013, it's a uh, kind of a top-down puzzle game where you control two brothers, and the innovative thing here was you control one brother with each analog stick. At the same time. At the same time. So, which on its own was, was really cool and, and mm-hmm. you know, pretty pretty different. 
but I, I wasn't a big fan of the puzzles. So there wasn't, in my opinion, a lot of critical thinking involved in, in several of them. You just kind of interact with things that look interactable <laughs> until you move on. So at one point you go into a cave and there's a puzzle with gears and levers and platforms and multiple levels and sliding blocks and, and so on. And I wasn't able to tell which direction I was even supposed to go. So I just like pulled and pushed whatever I was able to until a door opened somewhere and then I moved on. Reminds me of playing the original, um, I think it was Wolfenstein, and trying to figure out where all the secret passages were. And the way you figured it out was walking up to a wall and pushing a button and seeing if it did anything, which resulted in me like running around the walls of all, every wall on the level, just holding the button down to see what would happen. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that reminds me of uh, another game actually that I played recently called uh, Hyperlight Drifter, which is kind of uh, a 2D Legend of Zelda for a modern audience. But. It, it was fun, but then there were all these secret achievements you were supposed to find. But and the way you found them was just kind of, kind of pressing your character up against the edge of each level until you found a hidden passageway, mm-hmm. and then there's a secret there. And that wasn't terribly mentally stimulating for me. So no, it doesn't feel like you've actually accomplished anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least there it doesn't kind of masquerade as a true, you know, a problem-solving experience. It's more of an Easter egg hunt, which yeah, I, I can I get you know the enjoyment mm-hmm. of, but. So, yeah, so in those instances, I, I solved a problem without really understanding any of the underlying mechanics of the, the puzzle, you know, similar to the, the criticism from the article we just looked at. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the, the star attraction in our talk today are the quest games from a studio called Sierra Online, mm-hmm. which I think was a big part of maybe a lot of computer gamers' childhoods if, if you're our age growing up in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, it was was it like mid '80s they came on the scene and probably waned about ten years later. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. You ask about the timeline, Chad. Uh, Sierra actually made one of the first computer games with with graphics, um, Mystery House for the Apple II. <laughs> I am not familiar with that one. <laughs> In uh, 1980. So yeah, you can look it up online. It's basically white lines on a black background. Revolutionary for the time, though revolutionary for the time and i think so the story is that roberta williams um kind of wrote the storyline for the game and her husband ken williams programmed it and i think uh you know they kind of had to sell it on their own but it was a a big hit and then they they founded sierra online Uh, sierra is most famous for as i mentioned the the quest games the first of which was king's quest one in 1984 did they name it king's quest one like were they ambitious that that there would be a two and a three Oh, that's a good question. I think it was just King's Quest. So in retrospect, it was dubbed one. Yeah, later it might have become one. Um, So King's Quest consists of walking around a fairy tale world, collecting objects that you can use to solve puzzles. Uh, For example, you might wander into a gypsy camp and pick up a tambourine, and then use that later to scare a snake away from the path, because snakes hate tambourines, I guess. That's my takeaway. (laughs) Uh, the goals of the games are usually, you know, you want to become a king by finding magic artifacts, or you need to save a princess, or you need to rescue a royal family from an evil magician, so that kind of storyline. And a lot of the, the quest games kind of follow the same general pattern. There was also Space Quest, which was a parody of uh, the Star Trek series. 
you played the unlikely hero of Roger Wilco, uh, a space janitor. (laughs) (laughs) Every child dreams of becoming a space janitor. Right. The the first game opens with aliens invading his ship and killing off everyone except him because he's asleep in the the broom closet. (laughs) Oh, well, that's one tactic. So it's on him to uh, to save the world. Uh, there's also Leisure Suit Larry, which is about a middle-aged guy trying to get laid. Slight basically. tonal shift there. <laughs> yeah, something you probably wouldn't see from, you know, a, a game studio to, you know, two different tones like King's Quest and then Leisure Suit Larry. Yeah. Where, where, where basically you get rewarded for solving puzzles with, with cartoon porn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There was a Quest for Glory, which also took place in a fantasy world, but had more of a, a high fantasy, you know, Lord of the Rings type type tone. Uh, probably my favorite of the series. Uh, it combined puzzle solving from King's Quest with some like arcade style combat, and there were statistics you could level up, and you could pick like to be a fighter or a wizard or a thief, and go through the game different times and solve puzzles different ways. So. I, I enjoyed those, I think, a lot. I somehow completely missed that that one existed. I thought I was familiar with, or at least dabbled in most of Sierra's stuff, but I, just, I missed that. Oh yeah, I recommend them. You can you can buy collections of all these, either on Steam or uh, GOG.com, mm-hmm. if you're interested. Uh, then I guess, interesting, more from a training perspective, was Police Quest, <laughs> which the puzzles involved solving crimes and following proper police procedure. <laughs> Man, so you, you really sell that one as thrilling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you play a police officer making traffic stops, and well, eventually the first game develops into you're tracking down a drug lord. It's called uh, In Pursuit of the Death Angel. So nice. So there you go. They're actually designed by a veteran police officer, um, and uh, I've heard that they had been used in real police officer training as kind of an urban myth. But the most evidence that I could find about this was. Uh, online in an article from a 1988 issue of Law and Order, <laughs> which was, quote, a magazine for police management professionals. <laughs> and it basically said that uh, one police officer thought it was fun and shared it around his precinct and everyone liked it and talked about it for a while, which I don't know if that constitutes police officer training. Next thing you know, it's getting plastered on the box art as an endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one of my favorite parts of the article was that the game came in both three and a half and five and a quarter inch floppies, so you Whoa. didn't have to worry about having the right disk drive. That wow! <laughs> in the future, when historians need to like carbon date when a game came out, that will pinpoint it fairly exactly. <laughs> oh, three and a half inch floppies! How, how much memory, Chad? One point four four megabytes a piece. Yeah, only if you had the high density ones. Otherwise, it was half that. I still remember installing King's Quest Six on my computer and going through, oh geez, at least nine. Yeah, a stack uh-huh. of three and a half inch floppies. Um, most of which were dedicated to a very low res picture of a chandelier spinning around in a cutscene. <laughs> <laughs> Times, uh, yeah, we, let's not go back to that. <laughs> and another series, there wasn't quest in the title. Uh, what? I don't understand. Yeah, they were called Gabriel Knight, where you uh, play a detective, Gabriel Knight, investigating supernatural or occult murders. So the first game took place in New Orleans, uh, Louisiana. Uh, second game in Bavaria, Germany. And then the third game, I think, in an anonymous French village. The third game in the series was released in 1999 and was the last adventure game Sierra published. I didn't uh, realize they'd persisted that long in that genre. 
Yeah, they they had been kind of stumbling for a while, I think, at that point. Um, keep in mind that that third game, because we will, we will get back to it. So, the discovery learning part of these games was trying to figure out the fairy tale logic of the puzzles, so you could progress. And rarely did anything you learn in one puzzle help you in another puzzle, with the mm-hmm. possible exception of uh, Police Quest, maybe. Um, so in the King's Quest game with the tambourine and snake puzzle, that I guess is kind of like real world logic a little bit, maybe scaring away an animal. I guess I mean loud noises if you've got no other tactic at hand. Like I, I don't know. In retrospect, I don't think that showing nine year old me that you should run up to a snake and make a loud noise was <laughs> you know really the best child safety training, but. Um, but you have that, and then a, a couple minutes later, then you're fighting a rampaging yeti, and the way you defeat the yeti is by throwing a pie in its face. <laughs> now, don't get those mixed up. Don't throw the pie at the snake and shake a tambourine at the yeti. Right. Uh, King's Quest, especially King's Quest Five, was infamous for unwinnable situations. So yeah, that was the game that made me quit playing the genre entirely for a good period. There's a part where you have to find your way through a desert, and I never got past it. Because you just, you wander aimlessly through the desert and hope you end up in the right place. And eventually you die if you don't. And you just have to remember, oh, don't go that way next time. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there's a desert. It's probably like 30 or 40 screens in a grid. Yeah. And you can only go through so many screens before you die of thirst. And Mm -hmm. you have to find oases along the way. And uh, that's actually where you find the gypsy camp eventually to get the tambourine to get past the snake. Man, see, all this excitement awaited me. If only I'd persisted. Yeah, and yeah, and the the only way to solve it really is by taking out your trusty graph paper and mm-hmm. just literally mapping it out. And and I, I think it's impossible to solve without dying, you know, yeah. several times. And because... I think at the time I kept looking for like hints and clues and ways to. <laughs> help me navigate it when in reality i should have just (laughs) drawn a damn picture are you sweet naive child yep (laughs) (laughs) so i did not play king's quest six or most of five (laughs) um yeah well yeah as which is certainly a respectable opinion um although although that was uh, i think an annoying puzzle and a, a, a flaw in the game um actually the the definition of unwinnable when a lot of people use it is slightly different so there's one puzzle in King's Quest V where you end up tied up in a basement. And the only way you can escape is by having a mouse chew through the ropes and let you escape. Uh-huh. But the only way the mouse will chew through the ropes is if earlier in the game, when you first see the mouse being chased by a cat, you throw a boot at the cat to prevent it from eating the mouse. Oh, so if you miss that opportunity, you're just stuck? Right, so you have to hope that you had picked up the boot before coming into this screen because the event happens within a few seconds right away. <laughs> oh, wow. And if you don't have the boot and if you don't immediately throw it to the cat, then basically you've made your game unwinnable and there's nothing you can do. There's no way to go back and, and try again. Exactly, and there's no way there's no way to know this. Like, there's nothing that tells you in the basement even that that, that I know of that you were supposed to have saved this mouse. So you could be stuck in that basement forever wondering what you were supposed to do, whereas you were already dead, basically. (laughs) There's somebody still trying to play that game, trying to get out of the basement (laughs) 20 years later. So 
a lot of these puzzles were supposed to rely on intuition and creative thinking. I feel like that's kind of the implicit promise of this game is if you just engage your imagination, you'll be able to, to solve these puzzles. But a lot of the times it kind of just devolved into the trial and error of discovery learning, which uh, the authors of the, the article criticized. Mm-hmm. Although I first learned how to calculate mathematical combinations wow. <laughs> as like an uh, 11-year-old maybe when I got stuck in a Space Quest game. And I just, I had like 15 items in my inventory and I sat there and used every item on every other item. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, wow. And I, oh, I don't even want to think about how many combinations that was. Yeah. I started from the left hand side and I realized if I'd already used an item on the left, like to the left of the next item, I didn't have to use that item on any other items to the left. Right. Because that had been done already. Yeah. Right. So... So when I got to that, like, you know, seven years later in calculus class, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've done this before. Yeah, Space Quest, totally. Yeah, this is easy. <laughs> yeah, I'll just take this day off. Let me know when you get back to something new. Um, so in- interestingly enough, the, the genre kind of began with, with text parsers. So you had to actually type in what your character was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And then moved on to more icon-based actions where you would go up to the top of the screen and you could select a hand to interact with something or select an uh, an inventory object and your cursor would change into that object. So your ability to do trial and error was a lot more aggravating when the games first came out because it's a lot easier to kind of click on a thing than it is to guess like how to describe the action in a way that the game understands. Yeah, and it wasn't even just like picking from multiple choice of text like choose your own adventure stuff. It was you had to type the words in and figure out like the right terminology did mm-hmm. you ever play hugo's house of horrors uh yeah the the shareware equivalent yeah. i think of yeah the yeah. quest games yeah it, it was similar style game but it was all totally text-based and there was an item in the game that was you have to just know is called a rubber bung which i guess i don't know if did, would you know what a rubber bung is not at the age that I was playing the game. Yeah, so I'm not much. sure I would even know that. Well, I mean, I know it now because of Hugo's House of Horrors, so maybe it did teach me something. But at the time, I, I rubber bung for reference, I think, is basically a cork made of rubber. Mm-hmm. But you have to know what it is to be able to pick it up and interact it and use the command plug hole with bung <laughs> at one point. Do you remember what puzzle that solved? I think you were um, like keeping a boat from sinking or something like that. Uh-huh. Well, obviously, Chad. Yeah. <laughs> but, and this was, you know, this was pre-internet. I could not, you know, so what is this thing called? Well, that's a very important point to make because, I mean, even myself who grew up without the internet, you know, it's easy to forget that if you didn't know a thing in these quest games, you couldn't look it up. Mm-hmm. I couldn't had go to... find a map of the desert that someone else had made. And now you had to ask your parents, mom, can I call this hint line for two ninety nine a minute <laughs> <laughs> to figure out what to use my bung on <laughs> <laughs> and then you have a very somber conversation <laughs> and that's when your mom says go outside and play with sticks and rocks mm-hmm. <laughs> like a real child <laughs> what have i enabled um later so yeah we move from text parsers to icons and by king's quest 7 i feel like the the genre at least this series i kind of just embraced the fact of, of what they were, and the cursor would sparkle over something that you could interact with in a meaningful way. Which is kind of a design trend that's continued through to modern day, I think. 
Correct. Um, yeah, so the cursor would sparkle and the inventory items would sparkle as well. But I think we talked about, you know, sometimes there, there's purposeful friction mm-hmm. in an interface, right? Where it's a problem that you want someone to solve for, for yeah. a reason, right? And if, if the game is just going to sparkle wherever you're supposed to click, you know, to to what degree is that still a, a meaningful game experience? Yeah, then you're just looking for the sparkles rather than thinking about anything. Right, right. So, yeah, so there there is very little underlying schema in a lot of the games, or if there is, it was, you know, very opaque, and a lot of players, or at least me, would just stumble through the puzzles until they got to the end of the game. You know, a lot of, like, how the authors of the article that we talked about describe discovery learning. And, you know, just because I got to the end of the game didn't mean I was going to do any better in the next game. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. There was no uh, transferable takeaway. Right, exactly. And plus, the process could be extremely, extremely frustrating, but you know, profitable for the the hint lines at least. <laughs> um, so we talked about how the the series and the the genre for Sierra at least kind of ended in 1999 with with Gabriel Knight three, and there's there's a very hilarious description of one of the puzzles in Gabriel Knight three in an article that we can link to uh, on our blog post. Uh, the article is called "Who Killed Adventure Games." <laughs> There's a part in the game where Gabriel has to disguise himself as a man called Mosley in order to fool a French moped rental clerk into renting him the shop's only motorcycle. Okay, so, I'm with you. I'm with you so far. So, Chad, how how do you think you would achieve this? Just not knowing anything about the game, like, what do you think would be a rational way of achieving this goal? Well, I'd have to figure out what Mosley looks like, and mm-hmm. then I don't, I, um, I don't know, get a haircut to match him. Sure, sure, maybe, valid. Maybe wear like sunglasses or some sort of hat, perhaps. <laughs> Matches clothes, you know. So Chad, that that would you let, let's say you have a picture of Mosley, Chad. Let's say uh-huh. that Mosley does not have a mustache. Okay. Do I have a mustache? Uh, no, you you do not either. Okay. So would you guess that part of your disguise would involve making a fake mustache? Um. <laughs> No, 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 I would not. Well, in Gabriel Knight 3, it does. <laughs> so, okay. So even though the person that you're trying to impersonate does not have a mustache, part of your disguise involves creating a fake mustache. Is there any story element about how French moped clerks are, get confused by mustaches or something? Uh, I do not know. Full disclosure, it did not actually make it all the way to Gabriel Knight 3. Um, <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> my assumption is probably not. And then, do you think you would get the the hair for this mustache? Maybe, you know, from cutting your own hair, perhaps? Or just go buy a fake mustache? Would you guess that to get the hair for this mustache, you must first find masking tape, then put the masking tape over a hole in a tool shed, and then chase a cat through the hole in a tool shed, so that you can take all of the cat hair that remained on the (laughs) masking tape and fashion a mustache out of it. I do not live in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, so no, <laughs> I, I would not. I would not assume any any of those things, let alone all of them strung together. And then uh, the cherry on top of the Sunday is that to attach the mustache to your lip, you must use maple syrup. <laughs> okay. Did anybody and, complete this game ever? Uh, I'm sure someone. I mean, you, you click in enough places, and the you know a broken clock is right twice a day, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so, I guess by '99 there was a bit of an internet you might have been able to find a FAQ on. 
<laughs> yes, a big motivation for creating the internet was figuring out the solution to Gabriel Knight. <laughs> Thank you, Sierra. We owe you a debt. Uh, yeah, so the the article, Who Killed Adventure Games, ends with a quote. Who killed Adventure Games? I think it should be pretty clear at this point that Adventure Games committed suicide. <laughs> <laughs> we knew them well. Yeah, which... Which is a sad way for the genre to end. I mean, as a child, I did have a lot of fun with these games, maybe just because I didn't know any better. But <laughs> yeah, I guess that's that's not exactly high praise. But but yeah, we'll go with it. Well, I did th- I did think it kind of created in me the the assumption that for something to be a, a fun experience, there had to be an amount of like hardship in it. <laughs> to to this day, I think the way I play a lot of games is like let's try every conceivable possibility, whether or not it makes any sense. And I could, mm-hmm. I'm realizing now that I could probably trace a fairly direct path back to the Sierra games I played in my formative years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hmm. So I learned bad skills from these games. We both turned out okay, though, kind of. Uh, you know, depend on definitions and standards. Right. So, all right, we've talked about the light side of discovery learning. And we've talked about the dark side of discovery learning. But I'm so confused. How does that change how we should design training, Chad? What should we take away from this? I have no idea. Let's bring it all together. Uh, nope. Let's no. do that next week. Ah, that's called a teaser. <laughs> that's called a teaser. So, you've been listening to Gamification Unlocked. I'm Brandon Carper. And I'm Chad Hayfley. This is just a reminder that we've launched a Facebook page where you can comment on our episodes and see sneak previews of upcoming ones. I know that especially if you are an educator, discovery learning might be a very cherished idea in your heart or the hearts of people that you know, because children need to get out and experience the world instead of being shut up in classrooms. Am I right, Chad? I think so. I'm pretty sure I heard some monocles popping out of sockets Mm. while people listen to this episode. So uh, so please come in and tell us your experiences with this uh, idea of discovery learning. Tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, it's your move. <laughs>